Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. All right, folks, welcome back to another episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast. I'm your host, Zach Bitter, and today I have a guest interview for you. Today's guest is Stuart Chutter. Stuart is uh, a very interesting person. He actually reached out to me after I did a podcast on kind of health influencers getting into the regenerative farming movement. And Stuart was an easy invite for me because he has a lot of interesting topics about his lifestyle that I wanted to hear more about. And one of is he is an ultra marathon runner, uh, I guess, regular runner, if you want to call it that. He does marathons and things shorter than ultras as well, too. And also obstacle horse racing type stuff. So uh, he has a really cool setup up in Canada where he decided about six years ago to build out a regenerative farm and make his living that way. And within that framework, he has built like an outdoor gym with like a squat rack and stuff outside, as well as uh, in a couple of instances, done some pretty cool, what I would call like personal projects, one of which he did, he trained for a marathon and raced the marathon, eating nothing than what he grew or raised on his specific farm. And he's also done some similar things in the past too, where he did that with just like kind of like local farms around him, where he was uh, using some products outside his farm, but they were all kind of neighboring farms around his area. So I want to kind of hear about his lifestyle, what got him into regenerative farming, what his draw was to running, how that all kind of impacts the way he trains and goes about his lifestyle, and just learn a little bit more about uh, you know, some of this regenerative farming technique and where he kind of views it going, where he views uh, farms that are either like moving towards that versus taking a more traditional model and all sorts of that stuff. So that's today's interview. Uh, also, as always, if you want to access these episodes ad-free and early release, that option is available to you on the show Patreon page. You can link over to the show Patreon page by just heading to the Human Performance Outliers podcast website, which is just zachbetter.com forward slash HPO. There you'll find links to the show Patreon page, donation options, as well as details, discounts, and things that are offered from individual episodes as well. If uh, you're curious about what's up there right now, right now I have from yet to be released standpoint is uh, Boyd Myers is up there. Boyd is a, what I would call maybe a, a non-traditional endurance athlete. He actually had a background in, in bodybuilding and as a, uh, as a service member. So uh, he owned a gym, ended up selling it, ended up gaining a bunch of weight and decided he needed to get things back in line and picked up running. If I remember correctly, I believe it was over the pandemic. And now is just doing all sorts of crazy uh, adventures and things like that. He just decided to randomly run 100 miles one day. He's currently signed up for a uh, a back-to-back Ironman, half Ironman in what will be a couple of weeks, I think. Uh, and he's doing that at, with the Gold Star Initiative, where he'll carry, a, he'll carry a flag for the running portion of both of those races and then present it to one of the Gold Star families at the finish line. So... Had a fun chat with with him and find out kind of what gets him ticking and interested in endurance sport triathlon and all these other things that he's up to. Very charismatic guy. So it was fun to uh, hear the spontaneity that he puts into his training and his day-to-day life. Also, for those of you interested in working with me either one-on-one or just following along with my coaching philosophy, I do have some ready-made coaching plans as well as one-on-one coaching packages available on my website at zachbitter.com. 
there, you can access that, reach out to me and find out if it's going to be a good fit for you. If interested over on my website at zachbitter.com, you can also subscribe to my newsletter, which I don't send out super frequently, but when I do have a topic I want to do written, I'll usually send that out. So if you're interested in kind of getting those updates every once in a while, feel free to head over there and subscribe to that newsletter. Uh, also, if you want to support the podcast in a way that is non-monetarily based, you can do that by liking, subscribing, and sharing the podcast uh, on your favorite listening platforms, on social media. Let your friends, your family members know if you find an episode that you like and you'd like them to hear it. That helps me grow the podcast and spend more time doing it. So if uh, if that's something you can do, that'd be great. Uh, otherwise, the final option for us today before we head into this interview is the show sponsors. If one of the show sponsors has a, a, a product that you find would be useful for your life and you want to try out, you can access their discounts and links through this show and let them know that you came through them. Those are all at zachbitter.com forward slash HPO sponsors. Today's sponsors include Bond Charge and Optimal Carnivore. Bond Charge is a holistic wellness brand with a range of products that help you navigate the modern environment in a better way. They focus on things like circadian rhythm and optimal sleep routines. I've been using two of their products this summer. These include their 100% blackout sleep masks and their blue light blocking glasses. Good sleep hygiene like a cool temperature environment, pitch black darkness, and a quiet environment can go a long way to help you stay asleep and maximize your nighttime rest. So personally, I like a consistent routine I can replicate whether I am at home or traveling. Being able to replicate my routine as close as possible makes it easier to consistently get a good night's sleep regardless of whether I am home or traveling. I use the Bond Charge sleep mask to make sure I have the same 100% blackout regardless if I am at home or traveling. The material on the Bond Charge sleep mask is comfortable, adjustable, and allows me to sleep on my back or sides without discomfort. The soft padded eye cups allow you to open your eyes while wearing the mask. I also spend a lot of time every day staring at computer screens, phones, and tablets while recording, editing podcasts, answering emails, and writing my coaching plans. I use the Bond Charge blue light blocking glasses while trying to stay an arm's width away from the screen when possible and refocusing my eyesight every 20 minutes. This helps minimize discomfort from blue light and glare from staring at screens all day. If you want to check out either of these products and the rest of the things that Bond Charge has on their website, you can go to bondcharge.com forward slash HPO and use coupon code HPO to save 20% off your order. That's B-O-N-C-H-A-R-G-E.com forward slash HPO and use coupon code HPO to save 20% off your order. Bond Charge ships worldwide in rapid time and has easy return and exchanges if you are not satisfied. Organ meats are some of the most nutrient-dense foods on the planet. Despite their benefits, sometimes it can be difficult to incorporate them into your diet. Optimal Carnivore aims at making these nutrients easier to access with their products, which include grass-fed organ complex, bone marrow complex, and grass-fed beef liver. These products work great for busy people who are traveling or as they develop an appreciation for organ meats. Their grass-fed organ complex has nine different organs, including beef liver, brain, thymus, heart, kidney, spleen, pancreas, lung, and gallbladder. Bone marrow complex contains the same compounds as bone broth. 
Their products are 100% grass-fed and grass-finished and free of hormones, pesticides, antibiotics, and GMOs. They also plant one tree for every product sold. If interested, you can visit amazon.com forward slash optimal carnivore and use the code human save 10. That's human save one zero for 10% off your next order. As always, all HPO sponsors links discounts can be found by visiting the show sponsor page at zackbitter.com forward slash HPO sponsors. The five principles of soil health that guide decisions on my farm are planting diversity, keeping my soil covered, minimizing disturbance of the soil, keeping a plant growing as long in the season as possible, and incorporating livestock integration and animal impact into nutrient cycles. I'm really excited to talk to you, Stuart, because you had been listening to the podcast and I just recently, uh, for the first time in a while, actually had an episode where it touched on or dove into like regenerative agriculture. And one of the reasons I went back towards that from some of the previous episodes that I've done with it that were a little more exclusively regenerative agriculture was because something has started to occur that I was really curious about when I spoke to like the Alan Savory's and the Bobby Gills of the world who, uh, were kind of, I would call more into that process before people were really aware of it, or they were kind of some guys that maybe like thrusted into the public eye, so to speak. And a lot of them all kind of mentioned that a big catalyst, a catalyst that would come with growth within regenerative agriculture would be people from other areas, maybe even outside of agriculture, uh, coming into it and then getting some people that are recognizable, have a big signal boost, being able to kind of promote it. So when I had uh, Jana and Evan on, that was kind of them. It was like, these are two people who have been big in the fitness industry and different areas of business and things like that, that decided they wanted to get in on it. And they were maybe a little more on, I think that the processing kind of like end product side of things. So when you reached out to me and told me that you are an ultra marathon runner, someone who converted their farm to a regenerative farm. And if I remember correctly, you even trained and raced an ultra marathon, eating nothing but the food you grew on your regenerative farm. Uh, we had to talk. <laughs> so thanks a bunch for taking some time and coming on the show. You bet. Thanks for having me. I've enjoyed all or a lot of your podcasts, uh, especially those regenerative ones you mentioned. But yeah, that recent one really caught my attention. Uh, as a regenerative farmer, I'm a huge believer that healthy soil makes healthy food and that makes healthy people. And um, I, uh, we talk about that a lot in farming, in regenerative agriculture. So it was so fascinating to me to see people outside of farming who are so influential in the health space uh, key into that as well and really, really getting excited about healthy soil because that's such a passion of mine. Mm -hmm. Yeah. H have you always been a farmer? Was that a family trade or was it something you got into later in life? Yeah, a, a bit of both. I grew up on a beef cattle ranch in BC in Western Canada. Um, so I grew up in agriculture, but I, be I believed growing up, um, you know, to be a farmer, you either had to inherit it or be independently wealthy 
people don't just start their own farms. But uh, after university, I went out and I worked in commercial finance in agriculture. So was um, looking after loans as an account manager to farmers and ranchers in Alberta at the time. And uh, as their banker, you really get to ask probing questions and, and ask questions about their story that you, you wouldn't otherwise be able to ask as an outside person. And that really opened my mind that farmers and ranchers, you know, a lot of them are multi-generational, but somewhere down the line was somebody who, who just started, who that was their dream, that was their passion. They were willing to bet on themselves, take a big risk. So yeah, um, two years into that job, I quit my job and rented a farm and started building a, a herd of livestock. So uh, I call my farm a first generation farm and I've owned it for six years now. I run a herd of about 200 purebred Red Angus cattle and I'd call myself a regenerative farmer. Um, I'm very grass-based, very low input in my management and the five principles of soil health have really, they really guide every decision I make on my farm. They've, they've almost become the five principles of life for me, not just soil life, but um, yeah, regenerative agriculture really has become a, a deep passion. I didn't grow up in that space, like where I grew up and, and most of agriculture that I was exposed to early in my career was um, conventional agriculture, um, you know, the way it has always been done. Um, but I, I think that's the freedom that being a first generation farm allows me is there is no way that it's always been done. Everything I do on my farm is just, um, has just been from beginning. So it's a decision I get to make based on what I see, what I know, what I learn, and I get to experiment and try things. And uh, so sometimes I complain that that being a first generation farm is, is hard, but uh, it really does allow a lot of freedom as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's interesting because when I when I just imagine like that scenario occurring, even just outside the regenerative agriculture world, it seems like a very, very steep hill to to climb and then one that maybe doesn't even offer a clear reward. And when I think a person looks at it practically, I could totally see, especially when you're at you're the age, you're going to just decide what you want to do with your life. You're like in your late teens, early 20s, going to university or or, or doing whatever is like deciding like, Hey, I'm going to like get into farming. If you don't, if not actually on a farm growing up, the likelihood of that decision being made, I think is just so low. And then on top of it, when you look at opportunity cost between that and something that's maybe a little more predictable, it's just like, it's no surprise to me that we're not seeing like tons of first generation farmers getting into conventional, the conventional model. Cause the, you know, the, the, from what I understand, the conventional model sort of locks you in to the point where you're by the time you get started and you know get get all the all the stuff you need to actually run a farm you're like pretty much working your way out of debt for a huge portion of that and and then having really tight margins and one bad season away from things really getting dicey and i just wonder like where the risk reward ratio is there for most people is it, it first of all i should maybe i should ask am i even on pay on the right right track with that line of thinking and if i am is regenerative agriculture also potentially a better path forward for someone wanting to get in at, at, as a first generation farmer in terms of 
maybe mitigating some of that? Yes and no. I mean, the barriers to entry of agriculture are huge, no matter what type of farming. It doesn't matter what commodity you're growing, whether it's grain crops or livestock or dairy production. Um, there's huge barriers, no matter no matter what industry, but also no matter your production practices. I, I don't think regenerative agriculture overcomes all that, but yeah, I, th I, I think there's elements of it that do make that easier. I do think that's a part of how I ended up in the regenerative um, area. Uh, when I bought my farm, I didn't know much about soil health in hindsight. Um, even when I started farming, I look back and I think, you know, I only did that out of naivety and um, youthful excitement and, and having big dreams. Um, but yeah, I fell into regenerative agriculture largely because the farm I bought had such poor soil. And I didn't really recognize that until after I was operating it. And I had to come up with a plan of how to operate profitably on poor soil that needed to be rebuilt or regenerated. And I needed to do that on a budget of a startup farm where inputs and equipment um, were not an option. And that's where I, I think when I started livestock production, I thought farming was looking after livestock. And uh, I love cows. They're my passion. I love spending time with my cows. But uh, slowly I learned that to be a good livestock producer, you need to have good, healthy grass. And to grow good grass, you need good, healthy soil. And so slowly my paradigm shifted from my job was to look after livestock to now my job is to look after my soil. And I spend way less time looking after my livestock or paying attention to my livestock because when I'm focusing on the soil, um, that happens more naturally. And now I find myself, it's the soil that gets me excited. The, the cows are the business, the cows are the how I harvest and um, make a revenue source, but it's the soil that I'm focused on and that I'm building and that is making a, a profitable farm for me. And so, yeah, I think, as a first generation farm, going back to your question, it is regenerative practices that have made it work for me. Um, so many of the decisions have been about building production systems and nutrient cycles in a very low cost way so that the, the margins of food production, there's still um, profit left over for my farm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So when you first realized, all right, I've got some bad soil on my hands here, and this is going to have to be something I solve before I can really get too far down the line, or I'll be running into issues down the road. What is the timeline like that from the point where you realize I've got poor soil quality? Is that like a multi-season process of getting it back to where you want it? Or is that something that once you recognize it and know the right path forward, it can turn over pretty quickly? Yeah, no, it's been a process. And this is where I draw so many parallels between regenerative agriculture and running or a training plan. Um, 
you know, same with running a marathon or running an ultra, that's not something you just do. You don't just wake up tomorrow and you're an ultra marathoner or wake up and go run a hundred miles. And I think it's the same of regenerative farming. You don't just turn off the fertilizer and change all your practices overnight. That is a, a process. Um, on my farm, it took me five years uh, before I completed my first year with no fertilizer, no chemical use, and just nutrient cycling using regenerative egg practices. And the same, it took me three years of running before I signed up for my first ultra. So it's a long, long process. It's like training for a run. Um, and it's not something that you'd, or at least in my story, it's not something I did everything all at once in one year. It was picking a, a practice change that would be most significant for my farm. Um, something I could cash flow in a year, um, something that I really needed to prioritize in that year in the same way you might pick an element of running to train in a season, whether it's speed work or mobility or um, some injury you're trying to deal with. It was, it was picking one thing at a time. So um, for me, I started with cover crops and no-till practices. Um, prior to me buying the farm, the soil was fully tilled, um, very low fertility applied, no animal impact, and um, very poor, low organic matter. So I incorporated cover crops right away and livestock grazing right away. And those are the two practices that really accelerated the growth of my soil um, in the first two years. And when I bought my farm, the soil was about 2.1% organic matter. And in three years that had more than doubled to 4.9%. So those two practices alone were the priorities on my farm. And even still every year I'm adding something new. I'm experimenting with earthworms right now and really loving that. Um, all of my land now is seeded to perennial grasses and legumes. So um, focused on fixing nitrogen right out of the atmosphere without any synthetic nitrogen use and keeping a, a living root photosynthesizing in the gra ground as long in the season as possible so that uh, microbials in the soil are being fed, root exudates from plants all year or or not all year but as long in the the growing season that we have up here in Canada so those are the priorities right now and um yeah I think it is like running you're always setting a new goal always looking for a, a longer distance to to challenge yourself or a faster pace or a you know what's the next thing for next season and it's the same in uh, for me at least it's the same on my farm of what's the next thing to refine? What's the next practice? Um, Cause that's the beautiful thing about regenerative agriculture is it's not just a practice or a um, things you tick off that you're doing on your farm. It really is a mindset of how you approach things, how you think solutions you're trying to find 
and improvements you're trying to make. And I think that's why I see so many parallels between being a regenerative farmer and being an athlete is they are both so mindset driven. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's a clear parallel the way you describe it, the way I, the way I think about it with the running side of things is yeah, obviously that's where I know, no, no, no anything <laughs> comparatively. Uh, but yeah, it is like one of those things. Like, I mean, even, even where I'm at in my running career, where like, I know I can finish a hundred miles and, you know, I can even predict fairly accurately as to like when I'll finish, if I'm having a decent day or, you know, a really good day or however well I kind of execute things. But with that, like when I pick a race, you know, four, six months out. And I've talked about this a few times on this podcast is just like, you know, if I'm thinking about that end product of crossing that finish line at whatever goal that there is from day one, all the way there, like that can be part of my motivation. But if that's all my motivation, there's going to be some incredible low points relative to where I want my motivation to be in order to execute workouts properly. So you kind of have to scale it back once you know what you want to do and look like, okay, what's the path forward here? Now I have like that scaffolding in place, but once I have that in place, I have to make sure I'm doing things in the right order of operations in order to get to that end goal. And that might mean really narrowly focusing on what's this first task. Let's make sure this one gets done right before I even think about the second task. And what you described is kind of just like that. So I would imagine there was some carry over there did, uh, I guess this is kind of the chicken or egg question. <laughs> did the ultra running come first or was regenerative agriculture something that you took on before you got into ultra running? Yeah, no, I was deep down regenerative agriculture before, before ultra running, um, before running at all. Um, uh, yeah, I, I started running about three and a half years ago. It was a point when life really sucked. The farming that year was a disaster. I was having animal health problems. Um, so I set out running just as stress relief. I didn't even plan to actually start running. Just one day I woke up and felt I needed to get some stress out of my body and, and just went for a run and ran around my farm, my farm, 640 acres. So that's a, a mile by a mile. So I ran four miles and I thought that was just the longest distance ever. <laughs> and, uh, it felt so good. I I've kept going since then. And yeah, like you say, running and regenerative agriculture, there's so many parallels. Maybe that's why I stuck with it. Um, you know, slowly seeing how far I, I could go wanting to go further. Um, and then having a, a, you know, the endurance athlete in me was born just running around the farm. Um, and, and now both are such big parts of my life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's interesting to think, cause I know just, I mean, I started running early enough in my life where a lot of my life lessons came from running as like teaching me that kind of way to approach different tasks. And it sounds like for you, it was almost like you, pro you, you kind of used your life experiences, at least with regenerative agriculture to kind of move into running and use those same principles to get to where you wanted to be on that side of things as well. I think so. I think regenerative agriculture really has become a value-based part of my life in terms of contributions to the environment, sequestering carbon, um, animal welfare, soil conservation. Those are all things that are important to me that I can 
provide or, or give in life. And I think running is interesting to me because it, it does the opposite. It's, it provides so much to me in terms of confidence, community, um, my capability. Um, I think regenerative agriculture is a place I can give and running is a place that fuels me to keep going. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The, the interesting thing I think is just like how you spread your energies out here. Cause I'm thinking of just like a day in the life of, uh, of Stuart and what that maybe entails, especially when you're kind of in the thick of it training for a race, you've got to be like being active on top of active. I would imagine. I mean, I, I grew up in the Midwest and actually worked on a couple of farms, uh, periodically while I was younger. So I have a general idea of just the physicality of such a occupation, but maybe, maybe why don't you walk us through what is a day kind of, if, if there's any similarities, I realize there can be a lot of differences from one day to the next, but generally speaking, is there kind of a routine you have for your day in terms of how you manage your energies and kind of position everything from training to actually getting done the work you want to get done for the day on the farm? Not really. It is very seasonal based. Um, yeah, and every day is different. Um, you know, I think farming is very active life and that probably made transitioning into running a lot easier because I did have at least a base of movement and time on my feet that running provides. I'm also really into Spartan races. They're, they're, um, I'm just in love with them. And some of those obstacles like farmer carries, sandbag yeah. carries, <laughs> Um, so off, they're the easiest for me. Every time I do a sandbag carry at a Spartan race, I just feel like I'm putting out mineral or salt to the cows. And it's just, that's just easy. I don't need to train that. That's just a daily routine. So, um, yeah, like, uh, right now I'm training for the Spartan ultra world championships on September 25th. So that's a 24 hour race down in Lake Tahoe. So I am just trying to get as much time on my feet as possible, whether that's chores on the farm. Um, I try and get in about 10 miles a day of running. Um, I try and prioritize compound lifting. So on, on my farm, just in front of the barn, I have a squat rack and kettlebells and tires to flip. Um, in the barn, I have rafters. Um, that I can use. They're not like monkey bars, but I can hang from them and train grip strength for obstacles. Um, so the farm has been pretty cool for obstacle training in terms of looking around and seeing what do I have um, that I can train for obstacles because I don't have access to gyms or you know, ninja gyms or, or Spartan specific obstacles, um, when I'm not in the city. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I, I've bailed hay before. I can imagine that gets you a quite a ways <laughs> of the way there. <laughs> in fact, I remember when I was really young, the first time I ever bailed hay, I went, it, this was like the middle of July in the Midwest. So I'm just like, well, I'm definitely wearing shorts. And I walk in there and my buddy who had done it a few times, he's just laughing at me. He's like, dude, you are going to regret wearing shorts at the end yeah, of this day. Totally. Like the straw is not soft. <laughs> totally. But you know what? Actually, you say that and that's an interesting thing about regenerative agriculture is because the focus is so much working with nature and nature systems that a lot of those jobs 
are disappearing on my farm. Um, now the grazing season is so much longer um, as plants are so much product, so much more productive. Um, I'm bale grazing as opposed to putting out hay every year or every day. Um, so there's so many elements of farm work that have gotten easier as I rely on nature as opposed to management. Um, so I do find I'm actually putting in more training because um, farm work has gotten easier over the past few years. And now I both have the time to train and also more the need to train because I'm not throwing around bales all day or, or doing, doing as much manual work. So um, I've never really thought of it like that, but that is a is an outcome of regenerative agriculture is working with nature systems does simplify things. And that's been such a, a great, a great benefit or process on my farm over the last five years, where as a relatively young farmer before I was just working so hard, I was married to the farm, um, to, to make it work that consumed all of my life. Whereas now with regenerative agriculture practices, I do have the freedom to pursue other passions, spend time elsewhere, go to, go to these ultra events. Um, that, that wouldn't, that didn't happen five years ago and it couldn't have happened five years ago because I didn't have the, the time or the, the freedom. Yeah, that's really interesting because I suppose that's another huge barrier to entry for someone who would want to get into farming too, is you just look at it comparatively to kind of a typical like work scenario where, I mean, and we're coming off a Labor Day weekend here in the United States. It's like, you know, that's like a day that was put in place specifically so workers could say, all right, we get an extra day to catch our breath and, you know, enjoy some outdoor time or do whatever it is you want to do outside of work. But you know, if you're a farmer, it doesn't matter if it's Labor Day, if there's, you know, cows to be milked or something needs to get done on the farm, you're going to do that. And, you, you know, you might have a farm hand or something that's going to take over for time to time and stuff like that. But um, it's interesting to hear that with uh, once you kind of get your system in place, it it makes it makes sense. So, you know, you, you're you're not fighting nature to the degree you would by trying to implement a structure that is foreign to that area where you have to kind of turn it into something it's not or, or keep it something it was by doing things to the soil and the land to kind of try to preserve it since what you're doing to it is so so destructive i guess right yeah um i i think building the soil um building systems working with nature that's given me that freedom uh and more time it's also i have been able to find more help on the farm because it's not as hard. Um, it's easier to get help when, when the work is not as manual, not as hard. And also the people that I work with on my farm now, um, it's actually been pretty cool how regenerative agriculture has brought fascinating, amazing people into my life who want to be on the farm, who want to be a part of that process with me who share values, um, who are just interesting, fascinating, great people to be around um, anyways. So yeah, regenerative agriculture has made it easier, both the amount of work, but also the help to get work done 
and, and attracting people that I want in my life. So it's been a great community builder for me. And that's why I can also go out and run now and, and do these races, do these events and, and pursue some other, other interests in life too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, no, it, it makes sense. And, and, and one topic I really wanted to kind of dive into you with around regenerative agriculture is sort of this, I mean, this is like anything nowadays, right? Like we seem to want to put things in an easy to understand black and white type of categorization where it's like, it's either this or that, and you have to pick the one. And then once you pick the one, you're all in on it, regardless of whether it's hypocritical or not. And you're kind of stuck there, you know, you're stuck there potentially defending things you wouldn't defend because it's within the category that, that you chose. And, you know, you were talking to me a little bit uh online about uh just like how there is like probably a need or an understanding that i'm sure i haven't touched on in great detail with my previous regenerative agriculture episodes which is just this like idea of a middle ground or a like you know a starting point for people because like you're just not going to turn like you mentioned a conventional farm or no farm into a regenerative farm overnight so what is it or, or maybe I should ask it like this. Is there things that you're seeing in place that are kind of making that door open a little slower for farmers if they want to get interested in it, where they can say like, all right, I'm going to take this step this year, but still be able to maintain everything that I was doing before and kind of start out with like kind of a partial or a hybrid model of agri or of regenerative agriculture and then kind of see where that goes. Like, Where are the opportunities within that that kind of a system? Yeah, exactly. I'm so glad you brought that up. I do think the regenerative movement or the regenerative community has a massive problem in, I don't know if it's ego or um, whether it's just, you know, the world we live in where everything is polarized and you're either regenerative and great or conventional and bad. Um, and I don't believe that at all. Um, I think regenerative is a process and so many farmers, even whether they'd call themselves regenerative or not, are, are still doing amazing things. I know up here in Canada, over 60% of our farmland is in no-till seeding practices. So that's one of the key fundamental pillars of soil health and the bulk of farmland already has that implemented. Same with planting diversity. One of, one of the other five principles of soil health up here in Saskatchewan, we grow wheat, barley, oats, um, a lot of oil seeds, canola, mustard, flax. We're the biggest exporter of lentils in the world. We also grow peas and some chickpeas and beans. So the, it's not intercropping and it's not diversity within the field every year, but we have great farmers with fantastic crop rotations. Um, even in the, the conventional world. So I'm not at all a believer that regenerative is perfection and conventional is horrific. Um, I think the bulk of conventional farmers are down a regenerative journey, um, even if, if they might not say it. In the same way that in the running world, um, you know, if you run, you're a runner whether you're running an ultra marathon and doing everything and everything to, to maximum degree, or whether you're entering your first 5k race. Um, and I think that's the same 
with farming, if you are farming with a mindset of improving your soil, being there for the long run, um, making benefits to the environment, which I think are pretty fundamental belief systems in the farm community. If I look out at my neighbors and my farm neighbors, even those farming conventionally, they are implementing practices with those values in mind. Not to the degree that Joel Salatin or Will Harris is doing, but they are, um, they are making changes and improvements on an annual basis. And I see that all the time, whether it's fertilizer efficiency, whether it's um, experimenting with cover crops. Just the other day, I was out for a run and one of my neighbors had implemented, had put up a new on-farm weather station. So this is a weather station you put right on the ground. It has a soil probe that'll measure soil moisture, wind speed, precipitation, and it'll has uh, logarithms in place to calculate your yield potential based on weather, um, what's happening in the weather. And that can tell you exactly how much fertilizer to put down to grow the optimal crop without wasting or overusing any fertilizer um, if there's moisture limitations. And so from a nitrogen management perspective, that's fantastic. And that neighbor would not at all call themselves regenerative, but what an amazing investment to make for, for soil health and for the environment. So I see that in farming in general, that regenerative practices are being more and more implemented, whether we call them that or not. And I think the regenerative movement would be far more successful, far more influential if we champion that every small step, every change um, instead of vilifying conventional agriculture, because at least in Canada, um, I'm so proud to eat Canadian food. There's our Canadian farmers do so much good for the environment. Um, so to vilify that I think is, is just not true and is sensational. Um, yes. I want to encourage them to keep going. Yes. I'd love to see more intercrop and, and more of the five principles of soil health implemented wider across acreage in Canada. But um, that's not gonna happen from polarizing regenerative agriculture and conventional agriculture. Just like anything, it, it comes from, from cheering people on. I mean, an ultra runner becomes an ultra runner over years of training and they probably started with a 10K or a half marathon and people cheered them on and they fell in love with the sport and they saw results and they saw improvements and they just kept going. And I think that's, that's how you keep going in the regenerative world. I mean, for me, when I started soil testing and seeing improvements in my organic matter, that's what really, really got me hooked on regenerative agriculture, both because I knew the benefits for profitability and production in terms of water holding capacity, nutrient management that organic matter offered. Um, but also I finally had numbers to 
to show how much carbon was being sequestered in my soil and what a what a benefit that beef production is to the to the um, to the environment. And that's something I, I really believe. And my carbon soil test showed me that. And that's when I really went further and further down into the regenerative world. So um, in terms of influencing the farm community, that's where I, I, that's kind of the mindset I am that I would rather cheer them along um, and share my successes and share their successes because whether they call themselves regenerative or conventional, um, they're making great contributions. Hey folks, just a quick reminder that this episode is brought to you by Bond Charge and Optimal Carnivore. If you are interested in checking out the details and links to these show sponsors, you can head to zachbitter.com forward slash HPO sponsors. Yeah, there's some excellent points in there. I think like, especially along the ag tech side of things, I mean, which you've mentioned, it's just like you have more resources now to be able to uh, validate the work you're putting in, in the terms of like seeing that progress enough to kind of say, okay, I, I'm heading in the right direction. Let's stay the course and I'll continue to see this progress. And then also, yeah, like, yeah, they're neighboring farms. I mean, Joel Salatin talked about that when he first started his, like he turned what was otherwise like abandoned farmland essentially into, you know, where he has polyface farm now. And like, it was just, the proof was in the pudding. Like his neighbors saw that were like, well, we want that. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. and then you mentioned the five pillars and stuff like that. I would imagine that, you know, you don't have to sell them on all five pillars right out the gate, like, but maybe they latch themselves to one of them and say, Hey, this is kind of interesting. I think I could benefit from that. And they try it. And then when that works, they get interested in a second or third pillar. And before you know it, they're, they're looking at all five and interested in it and you, you don't have to force it down their throat. They just, you know, naturally kind of come at their own pace to some degree. It sounds like that's your approach mostly. Yeah, exactly. Both from the producer farmer perspective, but also the consumer perspective as well. I found sharing my story, sharing benefits, showing what I'm doing. Um, I've been able to, have some really great discussions with my farm neighbors, but also some really great discussions with urban consumers about farming. I mean, on the farm end, I remember when I moved to the farm, one of my neighbors who I didn't know at that time, he came over and a real like loud, abrasive guy. And he says, oh, I hear you're this hippie farmer finding <laughs> all these like mixed crops and flowers. And I just wanted to come over and see and uh, I didn't know him at the time. I thought he was kind of being a jerk. So <laughs> I pointed him. I pointed him out to where where my field was, and he went and had a look. And um, two two years later, he came over and he's like, "Wow, I can really see the difference in your your production, and your your cows look in great shape." Um, and then the following year, he asked me, "Where did you get your seed for that that poly crop?" And just last year, he sent me a video of his cows out on his land grazing sunflowers and radishes and warm season grasses and cool season grasses and this diverse mix of soil building uh, feed crops. And he, he was just blown away at the condition of his cows and how long into winter they could graze. And um, I thought that was a pretty cool transition of a, a neighbor showing up kind of making fun of me to a neighbor seeing it work and implementing it on his farm. And then 
on the consumer end, kind of similar stories as well. I mean, I, I've been spending more and more time in the city now, um, both just for social life, but also for running. And so often I get asked or told by, by people I meet here, I don't, I don't think they're meaning to be rude or, but you know, they, they kind of ask me like, aren't you, aren't you bad for the, you're a beef producer. Aren't you like an environmental evil, like you and your cows, you're just horrible. And, um, I can show them soil carbon tests that, um, validate that by grazing cattle, I am putting more carbon into the soil than the cows emit through, through methane. And that's, um, you know, Will Harris makes that same claim and it's been audited by General Mills or, or verified by General Mills. And I have that same data on my farm showing that by rotationally and intensively grazing cattle, I can keep plants photosynthesizing longer in the, in the season. And, um, and cows are a system that are net carbon sequesterers and, and so we, we so often blame them for emissions, but if we look at the system as a whole, there's more carbon going into the ground. And, and I love telling that story because I think when people stop and think about it, you know, it's very, it is relatively easy to understand um, in terms of photosynthesis, plants are breathing in CO2 and putting out O2. So, so taking in carbon dioxide and putting out oxygen and that carbon is going down into the soil through their roots. And if a plant, if grass does that in the growing season, it's going to photosynthesize and photosynthesize and put carbon down in the ground. And then it's going to go to seed and go reproductive. And it's going to stop photosynthesizing and focus on putting out seed. But if just before that time, a great big herd of cows comes and takes bites out of that grass, then that plant has to photosynthesize and photosynthesize again and put more carbon into the ground. And if you manage those cows so that they're doing that two, three, four times in the season, instead of that grass just going through its life cycle photosynthes photosynthesizing once in the growing season, now it's doing it three or four times and putting three or four times as much carbon down into the ground. And that's how cows, um, when managed properly, can ensure that carbon is being put in the ground at levels beyond um, the emissions that they have. And so good managed cows can are net carbon sequesters. That's really interesting. I think that was the the easiest for a layperson like myself to understand the whole process with the way you described it, where it's not just kind of that one cycle of carbon sequestration with the cows. That's that piece to the puzzle allows you to three, four times that process in what would normally just be one uh, is, is a really kind of awesome way to look at it or think about it, I think. And just like Thinking about the whole thing too, one of the questions I kind of wanted to ask about that, I, I had a rancher on a while back, and I, I'm blanking on which one it was, but he was talking about 
this system where, like you mentioned, you have tons of different types of, of, of plants out there that the cows are grazing on versus like a very select few or, or mono situation where they're eating the same thing over and over. And he had a, his setup was that they were, they were grazing on like, I think it was upwards to like a thousand different species of grass over the course of the year. And I don't know like what that does for the cow. I would imagine a more diverse diet like that is going to be better for the cow. Uh, I don't know, maybe it's not giving a higher quality output from a meat standpoint, but it certainly, I would imagine is better for the cow's health and ability to thrive while it's alive, if I'm guessing right. But I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, I think so. I don't know of any data that would support cow health on grazing um, uh, a mixed species crop, but um, I certainly believe that. I've, planting diversity is one of the five principles of soil health. So um, sometimes it's not necessarily about what the cow is eating, but it feeding your soil microbes. So if you have a highly diverse blend of forages and feeds, each one of those plant species has a purpose. So for example, you might have a warm season grass and a cool season grass in the blend. And one of those is gonna grow more in the spring and one is gonna take off in the summer. You likely want to have a legume species like peas and clover in your blend. And those will pull nitrogen out of the atmosphere and fixate it into the soil. And that nitrogen will feed the other crops in your blend, like those grasses. You might want to have a tuber crop like um, turnips in the blend, and that'll help with soil compaction and breaking up your soil. You probably want to have a deep taproot like um, sunflower in your blend, and that'll, again, scavenge for nutrients deeper in the soil and bring them up to the surface. It can also help bring up water from deeper in the soil during drought years. So I, I, for me, yes, I do think those diverse plant crops are good for, for cattle health and um, a good nutrient profile for, for their growth and production and health. But like I said earlier, I'm more and more focused on the soil. And I think feeding the soil is the most important. So when you have that diversity of plants, they are sending all different types of root exudates down into the soil so that all of your um, microbials in the soil are getting fed well, and they're building the soil health, they're building organic matter, and that's growing better feed for your cattle, no matter what the species, which is, which is leading to good production and profit on the farm. And I think that's an important, that was a hugely important realization for me that building soil organic matter um, isn't just about plant organic matter in terms of decaying plants on the surface or manure from cattle, but it's about that life cycle of all of those microbials in your soil, because the more you have of them living and growing and dying in your soil, their dead bodies are becoming organic matter. So the more plants you have 
photosynthesizing and providing a diverse exudate blend to your soil, the more diverse soil microbials you have that are living and dying. And that's how you really accelerate building soil. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. And I think you, you, you mentioned some of the, like the technology that you're seeing now, uh, I believe it was with one of your neighbor's farms where they had the, the weather machine stuff there where they could predict soil, soil quality and uh, fertilization needs and things like that. And I'm interested in that because I, I think my first point of uh, point of uh, just even recognizing the level of technology that was moving into the ag side of things was when I was teaching, I had a student who um, his family had like, it was a multi-generational dairy farm and they were at kind of a, a bit of a crossroad where uh, they, his dad was either going to sell the farm or they were going to like overhaul the tech side of it because they got selected for like this beta testing for this milking machine, essentially, where the, the cows would, they would just walk in it when they were ready to milk. And then it would like do all these like tests on it to test the health of the cow, the test health of their udder, whether they were producing the right amount of milk and everything. So it would like almost, it would select and notify and he would get, he'd actually get text messages during the school day where it'd be like such and such cow went through and has like an aggravated udder. So you should pull it out and treat that. And it was just super interesting how much that did for both the health of their dairy cows and their ability just to be milked when they wanted to be milked. And one thing that they didn't realize that they discovered was their, their cows preferred to be milked three times a day. And one of them was at like one 30 in the morning was like when a lot of them would go in there and they're like, yeah, we just wouldn't be milking them at one 30 in the morning if we were doing this the old fashioned way. So like, uh, but it was an interesting story because like the, they basically, this kid was like 16 years old at the time. And his dad asked him, he's like, look, I need you to decide if you're going to inherit the farm because if you don't want to, we're going to sell it. If you do, we're going to upgrade all this new tax. So like as a 16 year old, he had to decide if he wanted to be a farmer for the rest of his life or not. And uh, I just thought that was kind of an interesting uh, learning experience for both me and, and that student to kind of see all that stuff. But uh, yeah, yeah. I, there... I just add to that, like those sorts of investments, those are things like your earlier question about transitioning to regenerative agriculture. You know, that's another reason why it is a process and it does take time is replacing equipment, investing in new equipment. Those are things you can't just do all in one year. Um, if you just built a new barn, if you just bought a new um, cedar to, to replace it just right now to make that transition isn't necessarily going to be practical. Um, so that's why a transition to regenerative practices might also have to fit within your equipment succession plan and investment plan over time. Um, because in agriculture, equipment and technology, they're so impressed or so expensive. But you're right too, there's also newer, new equipment, new practices um, that do, do help with that transition. Um, I love what you brought up about animal health in dairy, dairy animals, because they also have uh, monitors you can put on, on cattle that monitor their movement. So it's kind of like a Garmin watch. And if uh, a cow is walking less or moving less or not going to water as frequently as normal, you'll get a, a text message that 
you know, maybe she's sick, maybe something's wrong, go check her. So um, that's, that's another just funny running parallel in terms of, um, you know, if your mileage was down in a week, you might (laughs) not be feeling well either. I had the flu, so I lost some mileage. Yeah. Yeah. That's funny. Yeah, I, you know, it is interesting, though. I mean, it's uh, you get that level of data collection and then it gets automated at the point where like you're not even running those numbers. It's just self-calculating like, well, we know this cow travels X number of meters or miles or whatever the metric it's going to be. And yeah, when they hit like a certain threshold below, it's like there's something probably not quite working right. And uh, yeah, that's super interesting stuff. Is there any other new tech that is coming out that you're like really excited about within either just general ag tech or specific to regenerative agriculture? I, I mean, for me on my farm, I am a very low tech farm, um, both from a cost perspective, but also that just that regenerative paradigm of I am simplifying things and I am going back. Some people would say I'm going backwards, but uh, I'm simplifying things and removing removing a lot of equipment really um, to work more with nature and her systems as opposed to technological systems. Having said that, for measurement and validation, there's great innovation in soil tests, great innovation in monitoring carbon levels that are fascinating and and hopefully very functional in the future for for carbon policy and and agriculture policy. Um, So those sorts of things get me excited. But in terms of technology on my farm, for the actual farming, it's very it's very little. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I suppose to a degree, that's got to be a little liberating knowing that like you're, you're relying on a well-established kind of cycle of like patterns that you're going to expect versus some machine breaking down where like, you know, what are you going to do about that? Even if you know how to fix it, that's like lost time and energy to try to put into it. And then most likely you have to have someone come in and do that. But yeah, it makes sense. I think if you have that, if you're able to do more with less, you may as well, because you have less things to consider when it's problem solving time. Exactly. That's, that's largely the goal of my farm is cost, low cost production um, and relying on nature and the five principles of soil health as you know, those are the technologies that are improving my farm. And they're not fancy and sexy or or new buzzwords or new technology, but uh, they're really working for me. Awesome. I do want to chat a bit about some of your uh, some of your running and uh, I guess you could call it experimentation, perhaps where or challenges, maybe where. Uh, I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast you did, and correct me if I've misinterpreted this, but I believe you trained for and raced an ultra marathon with uh, eating just food off of your farm, both during the training and then also during the event itself. Yeah, I've done a bit of both. Um, The race that I did, it was a marathon. It was Edmonton Marathon a few weeks ago. And the goal for that one was to fuel myself just with um, 
with food that I had grown. So I dried some beef and beef tallow. I made pemmican bars, um, wrapped them in tin foil and, and ran the whole race like that. I salted them heavily for electrolytes and, and, um, that, that was, that was pretty cool. I mean, I've done a few of those sorts of challenges, even with diet and nutrition for running. Um, I've been more, I think I've been more interested in nutrition that's value-based than a certain type of diet. Like I eat pretty paleo or keto based, but, um, most of my nutrition principles are, um, eating self-sufficient, eating from my farm, um, buying food only from other regenerative farmers. Um, so I've gone through periods of that where those are the nutrition practices that I follow. I did one race season, um, or one summer where all I ate was food from my farm, eggs and meat and some, a little bit of garden produce. Um, last year I mostly ran the season on with, uh, my diet was only food that was grown in Canada. Um, and, and so I think that, I think that just comes from my farming passion is, um, running really is more about the value it provides to me and building myself, um, mental toughness, discipline, confidence. Those are all the things that, um, that's why I run and why I keep going. And so on the nutrition side, I've tried to tie in my, my values of how I want to see food produced and, um, how I want to fuel myself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It reminds me I had, I used to go to this grocery store before where I used to live, where they have like these labels that they put on specific products. That was a, I believe it was like the, it was grown within a hundred miles of the store location or something like that. And uh, I thought that was kind of interesting where like, if someone wanted to be like a local vore or whatever you want to call it, they could just kind of look for that label and be like, okay, well, this one was, uh, this one didn't travel far to get here, so to speak. And uh, you sort of kind of self-imposed that to an even large degree. I mean, essentially for a while you were doing it on a square mile, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which is a really no, cool I story. I did. It was 75 days. Um, it was a round of the 75 hard challenge I did with a bunch of my farmer friends. And my diet rule was just food grown from my farm. And so for that, that summer, I raced all my races, just um, um, beef. And I actually, I actually prepared for that pretty well. I got some chickens for layers. I raised two pigs, two lambs, two goats, and just filled my freezer and, um, yeah, did a, did a whole summer and race season just on, on food that I'd grown. So that, that was a pretty cool, um, yeah, it, it just brought a lot of value. It's probably not the best way to train. It's probably, you know, I don't know, did I bonk harder on some races than I should have, or, could I have gone, I'm sure there's diet and training ways that, um, I could fine tune, but the, the value or not the value, but the reasons that I run and the reasons that I 
love regenerative agriculture. Those are the things that keep me going. So if I focus on those things, um, that's when I find I can, can keep going on those long runs. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think anytime you find yourself training for a running race, it's like, we get hung up with like, you know, who wins the race and who's the fastest and all that stuff. And I mean, that's fun and entertaining and interesting stuff and motivating stuff, but really like for most people, it's about finding whatever their why is and what's mm -hmm. getting them to do it in the first place. So, it, you know, I think it's just that much more fun to follow when someone has a unique why like that, where it's clear. It's like you didn't just do that because you thought that's what you were supposed to do. It was clear, you know, that's something you do when you like are very much invested in that passion. And, uh, you know, you, you kind of just displayed what your beliefs were with that kind of thing. Uh, to a degree. And, and it's just cool. I think it's, uh, it's a fun way to add some excitement to to an otherwise just kind of very kind of metric driven sport, I guess. <laughs> totally, totally. And I mean, I'm not a fast runner. I'm not winning. I'm not in the fast group. I'm out there for health, for fun, for community, for challenging myself. Um, you know, my whys are not often about pace, even though I'd love to get faster, but, um, yeah, the, the tying the two together, regenerative agriculture, food from my farm and endurance running, that's when it gets really fun. And, um, that I th I'm going to keep going with, with that sort of mentality. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. Um, I love it. I have one last question. It's a little bit of a pivot, but I'm always interested with this because I mean, you're up in Canada, you get real winter up there. So <laughs> uh, what is what is it like with the seasons in terms of how the cows are, uh, are sort of going about their day when you're in the dead of winter? How is that different? Do you have to have enough crop growth during the year that you can silo food for them for the winter months? Or is there a different different way to do that on a regenerative agricultural setup? Yeah, good, good question, because it gets cold up here. Um, it changes the farm and it changes my training and my running. So winter is a challenge in Canada. But um, yeah, in the winter, the cows are grazing as long as I possibly can. So it depends on temperature and snowfall. But I want to keep them out grazing as long as possible. Um, I do keep stockpiled fields of grass close to the yard specifically for that and there's a few specifically that have a lot of tree cover and protection so that they can keep grazing um, into winter and then when snow gets too deep um, they'll be bale grazing through the winter so that is uh, harvested forage that gets baled up and it gets left in the field um, and the cows graze that as stockpiled forage throughout kind of January to early April or so. And again, that's been a, a huge benefit for both labor and also building soil is that bale grazing because that moves a lot of nutrients back onto the soil and cows are spreading it around through the winter. And also, instead of me going out and feeding cows daily, 
it's the cows who are harvesting it themselves and going and getting it themselves as well. So they do have, they do get shelter, they do get extra feed. Um, temperature is something to monitor closely. They do need extra energy. You know, again, similar to a runner, when you're gonna go run a marathon, you um, you dial in your nutrition and make sure you're well-fueled. And it's the same when it gets to be minus 25 or minus 30, um, those cows need more to, to keep going and to, um, to keep like a fuel for cows is really how they heat themselves. They're, they have four stomachs producing a lot of heat. So that's, if you keep that cycling through them, they can stay really quite warm. Interesting. Yeah. And is there any, is there any, uh, positive aspect of having them still out there wandering around the field, even in the winter when there's snow cover? Cause I know like one of the reasons you want cows out on pasture is because they are walking through going to the bathroom on the field, hooves are stomping all that stuff down and stuff. Is that still necessary in the winter with snow there? Or is that just kind of just, um, sort of, I don't want to say turned off, but I guess turned off in the winter and not as important. No, it's totally important. Like, yeah, they're moving around there. Um, the manure is being spread by them around the field, as opposed to having to spread it with a tractor in the spring, if they were in the yard, but also as a cow calf producer, those cows are going to be calving in May. Um, so I specifically put the feed, it's probably about two miles from the yard and they have to walk in two miles every day for water and back out to feed. And that's to make pregnancy and gestation. And when they have birth, um, they're fit, strong animals and calving problems are way, way less when they're moving throughout the winter. So it's, it's definitely a benefit to keep them out on the land um, and keep them moving. Um, you know, we run for our health and, and they, they, I make them move for theirs too. <laughs> got a full fitness program going your on. Your farmer is a runner, then you got to walk. <laughs> that is cool. Well, I think there's, there's a lot of uh, reason for a cow to want to end up on your farm by the sounds of it. So uh, <laughs> this has been, been awesome, Stuart. Thanks so much for taking some time to chat. If there's anything else you want to dive into, we certainly can. Um, if not, I'd love to share with our listeners where they can find you. If you have a website, social media channels and things like that, or I didn't ask you this, but I don't know, like if you sell direct to consumer or not, or if you have anything like that, feel free to share those as well. You bet. I do, do, do some direct to consumer sales, but that is, I am pretty remote on my farm. So that's not a, a key driver for me. Uh, I am on Instagram as Stuart Cheddar. And I like to share a lot of both running and regenerative agriculture um, benefits on there. And then lastly, I'd just say, um, you know, farmers have so many values about the environment. And I suspect most of them are on some sort of regenerative journey. So wherever you live or um, whatever you're consuming, I encourage you to go find a, a farmer with practices and values that you you believe in and that resonate with you and support them because um, they are running businesses and that's how they make their living. And to make those investments in the soil, um, 
they need they need the support from from consumers to to keep doing that. Awesome. Well, thanks a bunch, Stuart, for for coming on the show. And uh, I'm stoked you've reached out and glad we were able to make this happen. You bet. Thank you so much. Take care. Have a great rest of the day. You too. Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. Hey folks, thanks for checking out this episode of the podcast. For those of you who are regular listeners, you'll likely know I'm also a professional endurance athlete and coach. If you're looking for a little extra help with your training and programming, I do offer individualized coaching options where you can work directly with me one-on-one. I'll personalize your plan and even scale it up to email collaboration and regular consultations. You can also access either of those on their own if you just want to contact me as you're navigating your fitness journey. I also have some ready-made plans. The ready-made plans follow my coaching philosophy and they scale from five kilometers all the way up to 100 miles and come in three different levels. So whether you're a beginner, intermediate, or advanced, I've got something for you there. And most recently, I also just added a strength athlete's guide to endurance program, which will help someone who is primarily a strength athlete who wants to either do an endurance event for the fun of it, bolster up their cardiovascular fitness, or just try something out, try something new. So those programs are built to be able to supplement a strength program. So you won't have to give up on your gains in the gym while you're going after some running or endurance related fitness goals. You can find all those things on my website at zackbitter.com. Thanks for checking out this episode.